Hello again, and welcome to Season 6 of the Bighorn Podcast, with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. As we enter a new season, I would like to revisit the goal of our podcast as not only a way to highlight the amazing accomplished men and women who make up our community, but just as important, brings our community together in a very personal way. When the idea to start the podcast over six years ago was presented to Mr. Hubbard, he may not have understood the process, but he was open to the idea, which can be a lesson to all of us to not be limited by our past experiences, but be open to the unknown. I appreciate the people who have been part of this podcast and their willingness to be open, sometimes vulnerable, always entertaining, and quite often educational. I have been honored that they have chosen to share the twists and turns, the ups and downs that permeates the lives they have shared, and these traits that have made them successful. We look forward to bringing you these episodes, knowing that everybody has a story. We also want to recognize the support of the people and companies who have helped us bring to you these podcasts. Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, who have been a part of our community for over 75 years. They are not only a company that brings you unparalleled expertise, experience, and service within this jewelry business, but their continued support of activities in the desert community is exceptional. Bighorn Properties, with experience and expertise that is unmatched in representing our community as only they can. Bighorn is all they do. They understand the benefits and culture that makes Bighorn the standard for the country and the world. There are many developments, but this is a community, and Bighorn Properties understands this like no one else. Back Nine Greens, whose ability to create a work of art on your property that can improve your golf game and enhance your property with the workmanship and service that is world-renowned, but also located right here in our community. Corliss Estate Wine, that continues to blend old-world technologies with new-world fruits to create their award-winning wines, which are available in both the poorhouse and the steakhouse at Bighorn. Corliss Estate Wine is another example of supporting our community in a tangible way. And we would also like to welcome Eisenhower Medical Center, who not only can provide world-class health and wellness services, but by being such a huge part of our community, cares about you and your quality of life. Also, I want to mention a person that has been part of this podcast since the start, Jonathan Dallaire. His abilities as the engineer of the stories we bring to you brings a professionalism that allows us to bring to you these amazing podcasts. Today's story is not only an example of success and accomplishment, but also highlights the addition of a new group of members that have joined our community in the last couple of years. We ended last year with Debbie Frost's story, and we start this season with the story of Shannon Nash whose accomplishments are impressive, and her journey is equally impressive. Shannon, thanks so much for being part of the Bighorn Podcast, 
And please start us on your journey that started in Saginaw, Michigan. Thanks for having me here. Saginaw, Michigan, you know, is a very big part of my story. I think it has a lot to do with how I even think about what my purpose is in role is in, you know, my career and and really what I do now. A lot of that started from coming from a place like Saginaw. Saginaw is a factory town, specifically a car manufacturing town, General Motors manufacturing town. Saginaw is about a couple hours outside of Detroit. I always tell people when you look at Michigan being the thumb, we're more like in the the thumb part of, of Michigan. You know, I had both my um, my mom and my dad's side of the family really migrated up from the South. One side came from Texas. The other side came from Alabama. And it was like that great migration, especially for African-American families, to leave the South, to go to the North for hopes of a better job, life, et cetera. And so they had really strong work ethic. They moved to a place that, especially in the 50s, where... They had jobs, they could buy homes, they could raise a family, be have that real kind of middle-class life. That was the backstop of what I was born into. It was a booming time, if you will, for towns like that when I was born. That changed a lot, unfortunately. But back then, the 50s, 60s, I was born in 70. It was it was a time to be from Saginaw, Michigan. I think one of the claims to fame my parents just always talk about, Stevie Wonder was born in Saginaw, Michigan. <laughs> it was a good time. I had a really good upbringing as a little kid, for sure. It wasn't just about the jobs. Was it also about the culture that they were able to create that would have been much more different in the South at that time. Absolutely. Because they were able to come in, buy homes, have jobs, have neighborhoods and communities, they were able to really create their own bubble. That's what I would call it, their own bubble. I grew up where everybody on my grandparents' street were either people related to them or really good friends of them. So I literally could go from house to house, from sun up to sundown if I was down the street and a neighbor saw me doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. That neighbor had every right to really do whatever (laughs) to have me stop doing those bad things down to you were hungry or you were thirsty. You could go to any neighbor's house and be like, can I have some lemonade? Didn't matter. It was it was a community. It was really one of those things where they definitely were living like the American dream. Hands down, I think for when they grew up, especially on my grandmother's side, I've since visited the farm and the property that they grew up in in Alabama. It's really a really, really poor place. I think about how amazing it must have been for her when she left to get to a place where she had her church, her community. She actually even worked for a while. Like she, she had a full life where she didn't have to worry about the things she worried about as a child growing up at all. It certainly is a life lesson, too. It took courage to make that move because you don't know what's on the other side, but you want to give a better life for your family. You want to give a better life for yourself. But to make that move and to be open to that opportunity and to take full advantage of it, it still applies today. There are opportunities available, but you can't just sit around and wait for things to happen. You have to make them happen. And what a great credit to your grandparents 
to make that move. And having experienced and looked at the other side of that, their life, it has to be impactful. And I think that that's something that they instilled then in their kids, which then got instilled in me, particularly when I think about how we left, me and my parents left Saginaw to move to the Washington, D.C. area. And that changed trajectories, not just for our immediate family, meaning me and my sibling, but for my parents' siblings, friends in the community, lots of people wound up migrating from Saginaw to the Washington, D.C. area, but my parents started as the base for that to happen. And that has changed all kinds of lives as well. And what was the impetus for their move to D.C.? So the whole family on both sides, my dad and mom's side, worked at the General Motors plants in Saginaw and and surrounding areas. My father, when you think about like the goals that somebody probably has at his age at 18 or 17 years old, it was definitely like college, but all roads lead to coming back to the plant. And so, like, cause that's a good job and that's what everybody does. Security. It's security. It's what it's, it's the family business. If you think about it in many ways, and I might, I mean, it was deep. It wasn't just the, my grandparents. It was aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody worked there. My mother and father First went to a community college in Saginaw and they got the opportunity because somebody saw something in them, specifically my mother, that said, you can do more than this. And there is this program at Michigan State and I'm going to recommend you. And they're actually looking for couples to come get this degree in education and then take that back to their community and teach so my parents got in a program that the, like basically the state of Michigan or Michigan State was doing, looking for people that were just like them couples to come get the education and bring it back. So they went to Michigan State. I mean, I lived in Spartan Village as a little kid. Like, so as a little kid, I'm running around Michigan State thinking this is what all little kids do. I would go to classes with my parents. They would use me as their guinea pig, if you will, for some of the lessons they were learning in school about teaching. For a long time, I didn't even call my parents mom and dad. I called them Billy and Gwen because we're on a college campus. Nobody says mom and dad. on. They had names. Everybody else called them names. I thought that's what you did. It took a long time for me to call them mom and dad, like many years. So they graduated, and that was amazing. On my mother's side, I think she was the first person to graduate from college. On my father's, other a couple others had, but not, but still, it was like a huge accomplishment. And they live in Michigan, so Michigan State is like, that's big. And so they come back to um, Saginaw, and my father wants to go back to the plant, but this time he has a degree. He wants to go in the management like training program to be a manager, basically. He has all the skill sets. He worked there. He's like a perfect candidate. Look, it was the 70s, not, not excusing it, but how he tells the story, I probably would have just shriveled up for him and empowered him. He went in and basically was told, you can get your not nice word many not nice words, very, lots of racial things said, back on the floor with the rest of your lots of bad things said, family, because that's about as far as you're ever going to get here. And for my dad, he was like, you know what? I'm never going to be able to accomplish anything here. I don't care how many degrees I get. I don't like, it's never going to work for me here. I'm going to go to law school. <laughs> 
because he had that drive. He he always kind of wanted to. This was like the impetus that was like, you should go to law school. Now, he doesn't know anything about law school. He doesn't really know how the process works. And so he picks Howard University. He picks it because the smartest lawyer he'd ever heard of in life is Thurgood Marshall. And Thurgood Marshall went there. So I should go there because he went there. When I think about it, I used to say to my dad, I was like, that was pretty bold to be like, you're going to be Thurgood Marshall. Like, and he was like, no, you have to understand there was no, no internet, no phones, no nothing. Like we got our news through probably one single source and Thurgood Marshall was the person you saw. And so my father pretty much applied just there because that's what you do when you have a goal to like change your life and you're focused on it and you know you have to leave. And your role models are limited. And they're very limited. Why not pick Thurgood Marshall? <laughs> but again, we talk about twists and turns, and I know there'll be a lot of these as you tell your story, but this is a significant, hugely significant event where somebody again has the courage if it was nothing other than him setting an example for courage, if nothing else, right. that's an amazing time. So he goes to... He applies. He somehow... The, my mom tells the story that he would call the admission office every day and say, did you get my application? When are you going to decide? Did you get my application? My mother says, I think they just let him in so he would stop calling them. Like, because they were just tight. Like, when he got there, they're like, there's the man that calls us every day. We're glad he's here. We moved. Me, my mom, and dad, we moved to Washington, D.C. We didn't know anybody. The joke is, and it has a big impact on my life, they were driving down there. They were trying to drive to Maryland because they had heard a friend of a friend had somebody in Maryland that could be helpful to us. They made the wrong turn. They didn't know where they were going. We wound up in a hotel in Arlington, Virginia, and... Hence, we lived in Virginia. And many years later, that's super important because I wind up going to the University of Virginia. I am an in-state Virginia student. I wind up going to Fairfax County schools, which were a really highly rated school system. That was not by design. That was one of those, my parents took the wrong term and we wound up living in the city. And then we got lucky that it was a really good place to live. Again, we are all products of this sort of fate, if you will but you have to make something of it. It's not enough just to take the wrong turn and end up anywhere. It's what you do with that opportunity. I feel just so fortunate that they did make the wrong turn because what wound up happening for me is I got exposed to a different life. I got the role models that you were talking about earlier. I got to see them on an everyday basis. My elementary school was full of kids who were elementary, middle, and high school, by the way, because I went to school with these people the whole time. Children of senators, congressmen, ambassadors, like just that was like a daily thing. So for me, I tell my kids all the time, for me, every year we did a field trip to Capitol Hill. Every other year we went to the White House. Why? Because Trent Lott's daughter was in my class, Tyler. I met her probably when I was like in third grade. So every year we did this, I thought that was normal. Every year we went to Smithsonian's, I thought that was normal. Everybody does that, right? Well, they don't, but that's my upbringing. And all of that became very normal to me about you can accomplish all of these things because this is what you see. The other thing is at that time, Washington, D.C. in particular had a black mayor. When I saw people on the news, when I went to doctor, dentist, you name it, 
especially at that point, D.C. has a really thriving middle class and upper middle class black community. Very thriving. So I saw that all the time. That was not abnormal to me to think that I could do anything that any of those people were doing because they were part of my everyday living. That's so important that you have role models, but also that you're seeing success and you know success and you believe success is possible. Not only that, you believe it's expected. You had it with your parents, but now you have it with friends and a sense of community that is so important because as you said early on, you were taken care of in that community before in Sackenhoff, but this is a community on a level that to be exposed to that at, at your young age still is phenomenal. Yeah. It made me quite fearless in many regards because I, so many people have done so many amazing things and why not me? And so I remember probably around middle school, I started telling people, I'm going to law school and I'm going to join the debate team. I'm going to do this. and I'm going to do that. And the people around me were like, yeah, you will. That does a lot to a kid's psyche when like the adults around you are like, yeah, you're going to do that. You can do that. There was never like a, oh, nobody from here does those type of things. It was all like very matter of factly, like you will do it. Well, the expectations, you make a great comment. I just wrote down, why not me? To know that that's possible and to feel that that's possible is a big part of a young person's ability to have dreams, yep. to aspirations, yep. to know that I can do this because I see people doing this. Yeah. In that regard, the fortunate or blessed or however people like to say it, I will say for me is a drive because that happened. I know that I have a purpose to continue to make that happen for other people. And again, Shannon, this is about examples too. And it starts with your father and mother. Yeah. I want to know more about your father now going to law school. But the biggest thing is you're watching this firsthand. You're not watching people fail. I'm sure people fail. That's wrong. No one has a victim mentality. When my dad was in law school, I'll give you another picture. My parents really couldn't afford daycare. They didn't have family there. They just moved there. My mother was also in grad school. She was getting her master's in teaching at um, George Washington University. So they, they were just two people who had a kid and they had to figure it out. So the school, Howard allowed him to bring me to classes. And so I would sit out, like I would go to school and then after school, I would go to some of his classes that he had at night and I would sit in the hallway. There's this thing called Black's Law Dictionary before internet, there's a big, it's a big dictionary. I would sit out in the lobby with the dictionary and they would give me five words to like memorize the words, how to spell the word, the definition of the word and use it in a sentence. And they would give me five every class. And then I would come in, I wouldn't know which word they were going to pick at the end of the class. The whole class would, see, would was a part of it, including the professor. And I would come in and I would have to say negligence, negligence is spelled and it means this. And if I did it perfectly, they gave me a nickel and I was motivated by that nickel being very motivated. Like this is the mid 70s. I was super motivated. I didn't realize what that lesson was doing for me at like five, six years old. I had no idea what that would mean and translate into me later in life. But throughout your story 
and your parents' story. It's one thing to be given opportunities, and it's another to maximize those opportunities. And you had to have this thirst for learning almost. Did you know that at the time? I mean, you're five and six, and you're playing a game, in effect, for a nickel. But did you have any idea at that point that this was different than some of your contemporaries? I did not at that time. I will say that certainly by the time I was in college, there was an inflection that I I was like, you know what? I'm actually a lifelong learner. So that's probably the first time someone said that phrase to me. And so I was like, I think it started as a kid. And then there was another inflection point once I got in the working world and practicing law. I was like, ah, that's that's who I am. I'm, I just innately, it was in me somewhere and my parent turned it on. And then, and then it has become a thing that I continue to do the rest of my life. But absolutely, I will say probably by the time I was in college, I realized that that's, that was a part of my DNA, like who I was. So at five and six, you're getting a nickel on a regular basis by (laughs) this phenomenal game. What comes next for you? And when your dad finishes law school, how does that go on for him? Yeah. So we wind up staying in the Washington, D.C. area. And that's obviously how I become really, although born in Saginaw, I really grew up in the D.C. area as a formative, all my formative years. So my father and mom wind up, you know, settling there, getting jobs and, and creating their own roots. And what starts to happen is a brother comes down to live with us because that person's going to come to college. Then another brother comes down. Then that brother brings a, a friend of his from the neighborhood. And next thing you know, there's all these people coming down from Saginaw to themselves go to Howard and then build their lives. They became like the hub for other people to now do the same thing. And that's very, I know it's very common It always takes like one person to come and settle the area and other people come. But really, my father going to Howard, he was the settler for all kinds of other people. And when I am now thinking back about it in 2023, all the people who have since not only their children. So they all went to college. A lot of them got graduate degrees and and the children have gone to college and got graduate. We're on like the next generation after the children. I was just at a graduation for my uncle's daughter, just graduated from Howard. So like she's like third generation at this point. It's it's crazy. But started by your mom and dad. Yes. It takes that kind of leadership, but it has to be done with results. People aren't going to follow an unsuccessful opportunity. To this day, are they still looked at within the community as the the people who started this whole oh, yeah. Yeah. movement, in effect? Yeah, definitely. A lot of times people say, you know, I give credit to your dad for like having the guts to leave and come and, and start this. And it changed absolutely very much seen of that. At my, so my father's deceased. At his funeral, so many people got up and talked about that. It was so... Touching. And that's another lesson I learned about that. I said, you know what? The thing you need to do before people pass is we call it give them their flowers. You have to give people their flowers while they're alive. Because I don't know if my father knew that. Maybe he did, but I don't think it had been said to him by all those people who got up and said that. Well, it's also, I would think, not pressure, 
but almost a responsibility for you to continue that. Because what they started, you saw it happen, you saw what an impact it had on the community, and I would imagine to this day, that's still something that gives you the ability to move forward and to continue that. Yeah, I mean, for me, it is what fuels me. At this point in my life and career, there's a lot of things that I don't have to do, and I would just be fine. But I wouldn't be fine with myself because I would feel like I failed. I would feel like I failed what they started because they gave me an opportunity to do a lot of things. And if I don't do something good with that, what was the point of them giving me that opportunity? I remember one of the most proudest moments of my dad's life, besides, you know, me graduating, all the things, he was very proud. I'd gone to work at this law firm. The building is in an area of D.C. called DuPont Circle. And I walked into the, I was meeting my dad for lunch. It was so fun at that point to like be able to meet your dad and have like an adult lunch because you're a lawyer, he's a lawyer type of thing. And he came into the building. I just started the job and I came down and met him at the reception desk. And his face was just disturbing. I was like, is everything okay? What's wrong? And he had a little tear in his eye. It was very small. And he's a proud man. So I, that's not something I saw a lot. And he said, when I we moved here in the 70s, the same building, I had to come in to do some type of meeting and they made me walk through the mailroom entrance and you have sauntered through the front door and don't even think about it. Doesn't even dawn on you that you walk through the front door. I was the one who was in tears after that comment because it just hadn't dawned on me how in a generation that much had changed for him. We sometimes take things for granted. It's important to know through these podcasts, I've noticed with virtually everybody, never forget where you came from. To always have that in your mind and always try to play it forward and be an inspiration to others because it would not have happened but for those people they came before. And especially in your case, that was a constant ongoing lesson yep. that you still abide by. Absolutely. Tell me about your school, going to law school, and now going into the workforce. I, um, I went to the University of Virginia for my college and majored in business. And for a minute, I thought, for a minute, maybe I won't do law school and I will only do like finance and accounting. I was really good at it. Like my grades were good. And I wound up meeting a, what I call a supporter who was a professor, Professor Hunt. And he said to me and a couple people in the class, you all are doing really well. I'm going to help you all pass a CPA exam. Now I'm like 20, 19, 20 years old. That sounded not really sane for somebody to say to me at that age. I was like, well, maybe when I'm like 30 or something, he's like, no, we're going to pass now. You're going to take that exam while you're in college and all of you are going to pass. And I'm going to basically pour into you. What I didn't understand at the time is he meant that like our senior year of college, we had to give up going to parties and, and all kinds of things to go study with him. I didn't understand that that's what I had signed up for because I don't know if I would do it again. No, I absolutely would. So that's what we did. We were very focused. That's that lifelong learner. That's who I am. And he knew it. He somehow saw it and decided to help. Several of us through this program that he just kind of came up with, which lots of schools now do, by the way, he came up with. We all sat for the CPA exam. 
1992, and we all passed all parts for sitting. Another person that has an influence on your life in a way that at the time you're not fully aware of all that means. Yeah. Of the people that he chose, did everyone finish that? Because in many of these programs, sometimes, okay, somebody falls out because it's just more work and they want to go to those parties. But you're telling me that everybody that he chose during this particular program went ahead and... and Every single one. I think he he knew who to pick. And I think he knew we really revered him. He was somebody who had been in, in not just a professor, but he professor being a professor was his retirement. He had been very successful as an accountant, as a business person. He even came back to the university and was like the basically the CFO for UVA. So he had had a really amazing career and kind of wrote it out with, and I'm going to go teach. So he, I think he knew the type of people that would be successful. And we were obviously people that were doing well in his class. Everybody basically signed on and nobody wanted to disappoint him. I think you point out something that we need more of, too, and that is in academia, you need to also be aware aware of the real world, to have experienced the business world, to know what the pitfalls are, to know what's necessary for somebody to succeed. And that's not always the case in a college experience. That's why I think Professor Helm was very unique in, because he had those skill sets. There's probably hundreds of people from the undergrad business school that owe their careers to being started by Professor Hunt, believing in them and steering them to do these type of things. So here I am now. I'm in my I'm actually 21 years old. I'm a CPA and I'm in law school. Because I was always going to go to law school. I didn't know the CPA thing would work. Oh, my gosh, they work. That's crazy. So now I'm in law school, and it really helped me decide, like, well, I know what type of lawyer I'm going to be. I'm clearly not going to – I'm actually good at this business law stuff, so I'm not going to be a divorce lawyer. I'm not going to be a family – like, I can get rid of all those things. I may have to take the classes to graduate, but that's absolutely not going to be what I'm doing. And so I was able to graduate from UVA. I was on the Virginia Tax Review got a lot of offers to work at law firms, accounting firms. So it was a really, for my father in particular, I think it was like the manifestation of, wow, you were able to accomplish all of those things. And so I do, I actually do wind up practicing law for a while. Marty, I don't love it. Yeah. After all that whole life of this is what I want to do, I get to actually doing the job. I like it, but I wouldn't say I love it. And so I'm still searching at at that point for what is going to be. And around that time, I also get married. Around that time after law school, I marry my husband, Bill. And Bill and I had known each other for a long, long time. I met Bill when I was a sophomore in high school. So we'd known each other for a long time. We did date. And then we didn't date. (laughs) When we finally decided to get married, I think everybody, probably parents and friends were like, it's about time. My goodness. (laughs) They all knew. It just took you guys longer to to come up with it. So you get married. You're now, are you practicing law? I'm practicing law, yes. But Bill went to the Naval Academy, and here's what I didn't appreciate about that. I didn't know a lot of people that went to military academies. I didn't even know a lot about the military, really. So I remember when Bill said he was going to the Naval Academy, and he had gotten offers at all these other really big schools, and he said, I'm going to the Naval Academy. I remember saying to him distinctly, are you just going to go join the Navy? Like, 
I mean, you know, you had great SATs. It just seems like you could like, I didn't understand that the Naval Academy was like a college and a very esteemed college, like had no idea, nor did my parents either. Cause they both were, they were all like, this is shocking that he's not going to, why isn't he going to UVA? It's a good school. So we had to get an education on what all of that meant and how really, um, tough it is. I didn't realize, I mean, once I got married, I realized, but Bill had to get like, you know, a, you have to get a, like a senator or a congressman to like recommend you. It's a big deal. Bill's parents both were in the Coast Guards and they were officers there. So he understood all of that. I just was not versed on it. That's important because once we decide to get married, I still don't really know what it means to be in the Navy. When he's like, okay, we're moving. In my head, I was like, well, do I have more of a decision on this? You don't. That's not how it works. When he gets his orders, you either go or you don't go with with your spouse. It's not kind of like he has the options to not go. That was interesting for the, a new marriage because we wind up moving up to Boston. Really, we moved to Rhode Island and I go work up in Boston and he goes and works down in Connecticut. And that's kind of what we did. No family, no nothing. We just had to make it work in a place where it's completely different than growing up in D.C., like completely. Well, very much so. The other factor is marriage is hard. Business is hard. There's a lot of things that happen. And now you've got some real challenges for both of you. You're still both young. You're both moving forward in what your lives are going to be like. This has to be a bit of a a challenge. I mean, it, yeah, I would say looking back on it, again, I'm naive. I don't know what to expect. So that's a good thing. Looking back on it, the state being stationed up there probably helped us in many regards because as a young lawyer, you work a lot of hours. And that's oftentimes very hard for the spouse or significant other who doesn't have that type of job. It does cause a lot of problems in relationships where you're working all the time, weekends, can't go to events said you were going to come home for dinner, didn't come home till midnight. I didn't have those problems. And you know why? Because Bill wasn't there. You know where he was? Underwater on a submarine. So I didn't come home. Like literally 75% of our marriage up there, Bill was gone. And he was on that type of submarine that doesn't have a schedule. It's called a fast attack. It just leaves and comes back all different times of the year. There's no set schedule that at least the wife knows about. I'll put it to you that way. And so while my colleagues at the law firm would be going through all these problems with their relationships. I was like, I'm, I'm married. I don't have that problem because my husband won't be home for probably three more weeks. So it doesn't really matter how hard I work. And in a very early career, I think that actually helped us quite a bit because we just didn't have, when we saw each other, it was like a honeymoon every time. You have to have, when you're trying to start your career, you're in a relationship, you have to have a support system. And if you don't have that support system, either because of jealousy or because of time constraints or whatever the things that you brought up that other people were dealing with, you both had a very strong bond, obviously, to continue to want to make this work in a very challenging way. Some of it beneficial to you, but also it's not traditional. But you've never been particularly traditional in your upbringing and, and what you've wanted to accomplish and your learning and all that that you've done. Tell me about Bill. Tell, what, what, is, what kind of a guy is he? Well, a couple of things. When you talk about, again, role models, 
Bill's mother and father met while they were in grad school at Vanderbilt. She was getting her law degree and his father was getting his medical degree. So this is what he sees as he's growing up in Tennessee. He sees that role model. His parents divorce. Then he's just living with his mother and he's seeing his mom as a single professional working woman. And he's seeing this at a very young age. So that becomes normal to him. Then his mother remarries and his stepfather, the stepfather and the mom are now, the mother becomes an officer and a lawyer in the Coast Guards. And his stepfather is an officer in the Coast Guards. So Bill is growing up seeing them navigate their careers together Normal. These are all normal things for him to see. So by the time me and him meet, we actually have a lot in common. We both have a, a parent that is an attorney. Both of our parents on both sides of all are all professionals and have worked. I think for Bill, me saying, hey, I want to do these things was like, okay, that's what I've seen my whole life. Let's like do it. I'm very supportive of you. And I think that's extremely important because all of these things are challenges on their own. So when you have a belief system, if you will, it makes it a lot easier. So now, where are you in your career? And you're living apart in different places, as you mentioned, than where you were raised in many, many ways. Yes. And you're experiencing things that maybe you haven't experienced before. Yes, very much so. I mean, D.C. is now, I realize, only a handful of cities like that. I didn't know that at the time. Boston was hard, especially back then. It was it was hard professionally to find a group to find that I fit in. It was extremely lonely. I made a couple of good, few good friends. There weren't a lot of people looking like me practicing. I remember I had to decide whether I wanted to take the bar exam for Massachusetts or Rhode, the state of Rhode Island. I remember going to a professional event. And at the event, there were a couple other African-American lawyers. And they were in Rhode Island. They were like don't take Massachusetts bar, take Rhode Island, because you'll be like number 50. And I was like, number 50, what? They're like like the 50th black person to ever be barred in the state. And I was like, okay, that's really crazy because I feel like it's late 90s. Like that number should be way higher. Why is it so small? So it was hard, I think, professionally. My uncle lived up there, so we had some family, but professionally it, it was hard. And really what happened is I wound up getting pregnant. And once I got pregnant, I looked at Bill and I was like, this can't last much longer because I'm going to need help. And my help is down in D.C. It is not here. We eventually we left um, once our son was born and started living in the, the D.C. area. Bill actually got a really amazing assignment to teach at the Naval Academy. So we moved back there and both of our families are in the area. And so those were some really great times in terms of young family, both working with the kid. Those were some good times for us. Well, another twist and turn that worked out pretty darn well. Yep. So you're in D.C., the next step in your career and in your life? Well, I think that's going to be it. I think we're going to live there. We'll, you know, I'll wind up being at a law firm and become a partner somewhere. Like that was the story. Two things happened that lined up that changed us and why we live in California. And really, besides one other time of leaving, two others, we've been on the West Coast for a, a, the vast majority of our marriage over 20 something years. The son we had wound up getting really sick and 
uh, wound up having to rush him to the hospital. And you know when you're in a, a room and uh, you get who was ever on call when you get to emergency rooms, right? You get in there and the doctor's on call says, holy S, you know, S word, kind of runs out. And it's like calling for experts to come. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I think my baby's going to die. Like this sounds really serious. At the time, Bill is gone underwater. I don't know where he is. He's gone. Basically, he wound up having acute cholecystitis, which is another way of saying gallstones in a baby, which is unheard of, especially back then. I mean, we're talking at the time where you don't use like lasers and laparoscopy to take care of that stuff. You have to do surgery. And on a child like that, they were just very concerned that they couldn't even do the surgery and keep him alive. Basically, I don't know what to do. And they call the Navy and the Navy chaplain. And because I'm thinking, well, I don't know. Bill's just, I'm going to have to make these decisions without him. And this is a lot for me to do by myself. The Navy goes and gets him. And they bring him to me, which is, I told Bill, we should write like a script or something. And to me, it was like unheard of. Bill's like, actually, it wasn't that hard for them to get me. But I'm like, no, when we write the movie, it's going to be very hard for them to pull you out of the middle of the water, wherever you are. But they do. They, they bring him back. Once he came to the hospital. And then eventually our son did wind up having a surgery and he's fine. He's 25 years old. He's fine. But once that happened, we kind of had to think about what's the longevity of you staying in the Navy. And then the second thing that happened, Bill had to decide to get out. And I think he was close to it anyway. Then that child, actually, we got him diagnosed for being autistic. Also, this is our first kid. So that's a different like pathway of like, what do you do for this kid? And it does kind of take a village to kind of figure that out. It's really hard. My hat's off to people who raise kids by themselves and do this because it's hard enough doing it with two people who are aligned to do it. But with all that coming together, Bill did make the decision to get out of the Navy and he was interviewing for jobs and he wound up getting the opportunity to interview some of his classmates and even the CEO at the time was a Naval Academy grad. So he had some connections and he wound up getting an interview with this company called Amgen, which is a biotechnology company in Thousand Oaks. Fast forward, he interviews, then we go on a trip. They actually interview me to work in, the, in like as a lawyer there. And we both get hired. And that sends the Nashes to the West Coast. But another great break, if you will. I mean, you are facing some huge challenges. You said, well, they make a movie about him leaving the submarine. This is about four or five movies we're going to have to make because there's an awful lot going on here. But you both get hired by this company. You're able to, for the first time, be in the same place all the time together. But you are facing these challenges with your son and still wanting to have successful careers because that's your DNA also is to want to continue to learn and continue to get better and continue to create a life that's better. There's a lot going on here, but it sounds to me like it's all coming together at this point to make it somewhat more manageable, at least. I think I was still trying to find my way. It all winds up, the twists and turns all like look great when I look back on them. Mm. I think at the time it was just we're both very adventurous people. The good news is that, so again, his background with the family in the military, lived a lot of places, traveled a lot. Me being able, like with my parents having that, let's leave Michigan and expose ourselves to a lot of things. We thought that going to California would really open up a lot of doors for us. And so we were excited and nervous at the same time. 
the good news for us is that we didn't know any better to like suffer and second guess ourselves, right? Because of course you come here, we don't have, we really don't have family again. And you got to like put together that family. And we wound up really getting some great friends, but it was also the right company. Every company couldn't have done that for us. We both working there. Luckily it was a big company. Even though we worked the same company, we didn't work together. I never saw it. We didn't even work in the same buildings at this point. We are just both getting a lot of exposure in our own career paths. And then even on top of that, Amgen winds up sending us to Switzerland to be expats and work overseas. And I'm actually pregnant at this point with the second child. So my sec- our second child was actually born in Switzerland. That's where I had him. Um, and what an amazing opportunity. And it was such an amazing opportunity. I remember working over there and saying to my boss, so I'm going to have this baby. <laughs> Then I'm going to be back in like six weeks. And over there, culturally, that's a little crazy. It's like, you should take off like the rest of the year. Like I had the baby in October. You should like, why would you come back? And I'm like, because I'm going to miss this opportunity for work and being an expat. And I love what I do. And literally, I, I think he was like, culturally, that was just mind blowing to them that I was going to come back to work. But I did because I needed that opportunity. I needed that exposure. I needed that experience to help me. I knew later in my career, which it absolutely has. But yeah, so I had a baby. So what? And Bill was like, you can't tell Shannon anything. Just, <laughs> just let her come back to work. If she wants. But you view these as opportunities rather than stump blocks. You view these as opportunities, not just to fulfill your objectives. But this is healthy for everybody involved. This is a good thing because yeah. as long as one's growing, I think they're, it's just better. It, life is better. So you've never in any step of the way, as I'm hearing you today, ever think that you're enthusiastic about every opportunity that's presented to you. And that's got to serve you well and also as a lesson to your kids. And, to, and Bill, again, is on board. Yes. So that's important, too. Yeah. You go to Switzerland. What about the care for your young, with your oldest son as you go to Switzerland? Some very fortunate timing for us around that time. The places in the world that were really good with autism research and autism therapies, there was a constituent in California. There was some stuff going on in like Boston, New York, like a lot of things. And there was a lot going on in the U.K., The school that our son went to was an international school in Switzerland. All the teachers were being imported from the UK to teach there. And they had a lot of the cutting edge therapies they brought with them to the school. So he was going to an international school. When we first went in there with the, here's his diagnosis, can you take them? They were like, of course we can take him. And we've got this person that's been working on autism and that person, and he's going to, and I said, so I, at first I was like, is there like a special class? They're like, oh no, there's no special class. He's going to be in this class with her. And this is the person that's going to go with him. And to the point where we were like super nervous because when you got to this school, there's all these buses and stuff that would bring the kids to school and parents would drop them off. And the kids would just go up, walk, would get off and just walk around the campus. And so we were like, he won't be able to walk around this campus without like an adult. And they were like, oh yes, he will. Just drop them off. And so the first couple of like weeks, we were we weren't even putting him on the bus. We were driving him ourselves because we were super nervous that like, I mean, he's young. He wouldn't be able to do this. He's autistic. That was on us. And that's a life lesson for us. He was absolutely able to rise to the occasion with other people without us around as the crutch. And if he hadn't been presented with these opportunities, it could have curtailed his growth. Correct. 
Correct. That was a learning that continued to then set the stage for his next and his next and his next in terms of what he was able to do. He was fine. And then we wound up getting a nanny. So you could get these nannies from the neighboring like countries and they would come in. And so then like I had this baby who was like speaking English, but also hearing Swiss German and also here, you know, had a nanny from like Austria and all kinds of places. It was just, you were immersed with people from all over Europe in like your everyday life down to, there was a daycare I even took him to and they didn't really speak English. And so it was interesting because as he, that baby was getting bigger and bigger, it was like, he would go speak like German in daycare and then come home and We'd have to be like, oh, wait, what was a German word for that? Because I don't know if he understands the English word for it. But again, what a great experience. Yeah. So now you have two children. Yep. You're living in Switzerland. You're enjoying your career, the opportunities that have presented itself. Bill's enjoying his situation. Yeah. How long did you spend in Switzerland? Yeah. So we were there for roughly 18 months, two years, something along, along that lines. We came back. To California. And that there then becomes a huge fork in the road for me, not Bill, but for me trying to also get our son reacclimated into his life. Our older one was proving to be a lot more difficult. He was older, was just harder to find all the different therapies. And then a couple of the things we wanted him to do were fairly intensive and it was going to take one parent or the other to have a, a schedule flexible enough to be able to do all of those things and have a job. So that is when I left my good corporate job and didn't have a job. I talk about this a lot because I hope it empowers people be, in the sense that you see me now, you think it was all, it just all worked. Well, there was a time where I felt like it wasn't going to work and it was over. And that was that time. I was like, okay, I did all these things and I've been loving my career trajectory and now I don't know if I can have a career anymore because I don't really know who would, how can I have a career and also do all these things for this kid? It's a lot for an employer to understand that you need this much time. I remember sitting in a parking lot of a Pavilion's grocery store vividly and just sitting there listening to the radio. And there's this old song. It's like a karaoke song. I want to say from the 70s or 80s. And it's called Ain't Nothing Going On But The Rent. You have to have a J-O-B if you want to be with me. And it's a catchy karaoke song. Came on the radio. And I remember bawling because I was like, I don't have a J-O-B. Oh my gosh, this is the first time in my life. I don't have a J-O-B. So should I go in and buy like steak for, because Bill actually is the cook, so it wasn't for me to cook. I go in and buy steak for Bill to cook. Can I spend that much money? It was just like a very irrational spiral. This was not something that Bill had discussed with me. Like, you're on a budget when you go to the grocery store. I'm telling you, none of that had happened. I was just feeling very disappointed in myself that I didn't have a job and I didn't have a sense of my, like, worth. And luckily for me, there's Bill on the one hand saying, "This you're going to have to work this out. You can do whatever you want, Shannon. Work, don't work, I don't even care. Just like work out what's going on in your head. And I had a girlfriend who said, just come to this dinner party. I'm going to introduce you to some people because I, there's got to be somebody out there that you click with that, I don't know, maybe you can consult with them. So I go to this dinner party. She introduced me around and I meet this gentleman. His name is uh, Norm, Norman. We have a great conversation. And he's like, oh, my wife is looking for, you know, somebody to help with her business. And, you you know, since you have the skill set, especially as a CPA, you could be very helpful. I'm going to give her your phone number. Okay, whatever. 
So he does. And maybe a couple days later, this woman calls me. Well, when she calls, she's at that time for me. I mean, I don't, I mean, you live in LA, you see famous people, but I didn't like no famous people. So when she calls, I immediately think it's the wrong number. She says, hi, this is Debbie Allen. May I speak to? And I'm like, and she doesn't actually say Shannon. She says like another name like Shannon. So obviously he scribbled my name wrong or whatever. And so I say wrong number, click, hang up on my phone. Right. Cause, and then Debbie Allen, that's funny. She called back and she said, this is the right phone number. And you met my husband. And I was like, oh my gosh, Norm Nixon, Debbie Allen. Oh my gosh, this is not happening right now. And fast forward, I, I do go work for Miss Allen and she has become one of my biggest supporters and mentors in my life. Norm has become a big supporter. They are part of our family. I owe a lot to Miss Allen because she took this corporate person and she taught me how to actually take my knowledge and really sell it, how to be comfortable with the soft skills in ways I, I never learned in school, never learned in working for a big company. Like literally it was like, if we have to select the entrepreneur, if you have to sell this business tomorrow, this is how you do it. That came from Miss Allen, not from anybody else. And I always credit like a lot of things that happened in my career, I don't think would have happened. I wouldn't have had the confidence to do them in that way had it not been for the time I spent working with Miss Allen. They are so accomplished and they were very good at that. Yeah. They were very good about selling a brand, if you will. They understood this and how fortuitous for you to be have this conversation, another movie. This is amazing because we need to be advocates for ourselves. Yep. You can't always expect someone else to be an advocate for you. That's wonderful when it happens. But if you don't have the ability to sell yourself, you're not going to accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish in life, I don't think. 100%. And that was the timing was just, Marty, so, so important to me and to Bill and our family because the other thing Miss Allen, what Debbie did was she loved my kids and specifically my son with autism. And she would say, I don't care. You can bring him to work with you. This is before people did that type of stuff. She doesn't, she didn't care. I don't care if you're here at 10 a.m. If you have to go to a therapy with your son, go to the therapy. None of that was important to her. It was all about the results. All about the results. I think creative people, of which she is certainly, they don't have to have as much structure or as many rules, if you will. They will allow you to be the best person you can be. And you can't be the best person, especially when you have challenges at home with a child that needs attention. But also, life isn't just Cosby or the Brady Bunch. It's not those, that's not reality. And you have to do that. And you have to have somebody that you can work with that allows that to be the case. And you certainly found that situation in both Norm and Debbie Allen. Yeah. Very lucky. So now you've got a new, not lease on life, but you're a worker bee. That's who you have been your role models all your life. And now you get to get back into that arena. Yep, I do. We wound up, so I worked for Debbie for a while. Then I wind up, I actually wind up working a lot in media and entertainment because once you work 
with one person, then somebody else wants you to. And the next thing you know, I'm working on like movies and productions. It's trippy to me to this day to go on IMDb and see all the credits. It's like, this was not something I sought out to have. (laughs) And here it is. I wind up really meeting so many people in that business. And that leads to another turn. Bill winds up getting a job in Atlanta to work. So he's, Bill has stayed working at the pharmaceutical companies and biotech. He stayed in that industry. He goes to work at another company, but it's in Atlanta. So we have to move. And at the time, I was like, oh, I'm doing so good here in L.A. So I was just going to fly back and forth. But a funny thing happens in Atlanta. This starts to become the time where the tax incentive to get business to come to Georgia and Atlanta begins to start. Well, what do I have in my background? I'm a CPA. I'm a lawyer. A big part of that whole scheme is being able to have somebody put together your packaging of your film and your production so that you can sell it for credits. I'm super good at doing stuff like that. My background was made for it. So going into the Atlanta market with an LA background, oh, and she's a CPA and a lawyer, it was like a great trifecta for that time because it was just all starting out. I remember going to Tyler Perry Studios when it was brand new and it was small, very small, and you could like see everybody like down the hallway from each other. Those days were, they were building the entertainment structure of Atlanta. And that's where I, when I was there, when it started. Another just amazing opportunity. I actually wound up making, I made a couple films myself because now I, I mean, I know so many people. I help people put together their productions from start to finish. Then I become CFO of a production company. This is the first time that I actually now had drawn that sand on the line that said, I'm not going to practice law, really. I'm going to do finance. And so that happened in Atlanta. And the timing on a personal level couldn't have been better. I now have a third kid. We have our third boy because we have three boys now. So I now have a third kid. We have a third kid. My father is really ill and he's living in Virginia. That move to Atlanta did allow us to more easily get to Virginia to visit than I could have done from California. So on a personal level, the timing was actually just really right for us to make that move, even though I wasn't completely excited about it because I was doing so well into LA. I, I was doing really well in the LA market. And so I built the the market in Georgia and we got to a point where things were great. And then there was another opportunity. This is our life. And this opportunity was gonna take us to the Bay Area which is not an entertainment market. This is all tech. We had to decide. And so basically it was like, if you get a job, we'll move. And Bill did get a job. So we all moved again. Now we have three kids. And I didn't have a job when we moved there. It wasn't like the time I sat in the parking lot at Pavilions. <laughs> I knew I could get one at that point. I was like, I know I can get a job. And I, I credit a lot of that to Debbie Allen. And the supporters is really important. I had her in one ear. Obviously, I had Bill, who's always been a supporter. And then I had this man named Larry Bailey, who throughout my career, he was one of the first African-American partners in a big, I think it was 10 accounting firm back then as a tax partner in the 70s. He was like the first. And he was always in my ear about, with all of your background and stuff, you need to get back into corporate. And this is what I suggest. And so I, I start talking to Larry more. 
And he was like orchestrating like my movement back into corp, like helping me. So I get a job, then I get another job. And then the next thing I know, I work my way up the ranks on the finance side. The next thing I know, I'm now VP of finance for a company called Cumulus Media. The San Francisco market is a big market, is a public company. So I'm now back in the corporate, but I'm on the finance side and a fairly good position in a company like that. That kind of helped the trajectory of me getting kind of my first CFO gig and then the next one and really getting into tech. But it started from making that move, having that supporter in my ear say, it's time for you to go back. Like, literally, I think you can do a lot in this field. And here's some things that, like, he was very helpful in, like, how I would even structure the jobs I was even trying to seek. So, yeah, now, I, now I'm back into corporate at this point. What would you tell young people? Because I'm a great believer that you have to be open to the opportunities. So many times in your life up to this point that you're now at, you have had to make decisions to move with family for various reasons. Some because there's an opportunity for you, some because there's an opportunity for Bill. Each place, it's the long-term thing is benefited everyone involved, whether it be your son in, in Switzerland or whether it be you and your career, Bill and his career. What do you tell people? Because so often we're constricted by our inability to want to, things are pretty good. I don't want to rock the boat. I think that this is going to be fine. And uh, I don't want to uproot the family. I don't want to do this. What? It's somewhat unique, but in, especially in today's marketplace, you have to be flexible in these yeah. situations. Being flexible has always worked out in the end for me. Like it hasn't always worked out day one or day 10 or year one. Because there's got to be a North Star and a goal that you have. But being flexible to try to get to that goal has always worked out. And really, no matter what industry you're in, and I tell my kids this all the time, it's all about the relationships. At the end of the day, it's all about the relationships. If you have relationships, you will get to where you're trying to go. It may not be as quick as you want it, but it will happen. Those supporters and those relationships, I didn't realize at the time, but now I'm certainly more intentional about them. I was amassing this network of relationships that have now turned into my personal board of directors. That's what I was putting together. When you have that in your corner, it makes it easier for you to take that chance because you've got this group that is not only rooting for you, but they are personally trying to help you. So failure is not an option. It's not. Like in the long term, it's not. You may fail doing these five things. So some of my friends are raising money for their business now. And I said, you're going to get 100 no's, but all it takes is that one yes. Who cares about the 100 no's? And that's what I think I would tell young people today about being flexible is that you're not going to always hit it out the park, but you need to develop those relationships because you never know you talking to me today may turn into the ideal situation for you five years from now. You've got to be flexible and open to talking to me today and have that drive. Because otherwise, I tell people this all the time, I can't care more about your career than you do. And these relationships are not just business oriented. They become personal as well as business. And it doesn't happen. We get back to this all the time. And this is not a gender 
issue. Yeah. But we get back to this every time. It also is about people in your personal life that want to support you. Yeah. And in effect, to support each other. But the point is, you can't do it if you're fighting it each step of the way. That's right. It has to be a partnership. That's right. And you have obviously been able to navigate that in a way that's been mutually beneficial. But it doesn't happen by accident because you have to work at it. You do. Yeah, a lot. Now you're in the Bay Area. And this has now become not a new career for you, but a new direction, somewhat of a new direction. How is this working? By the time roughly 2017, 18, it's very clear finance. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I, I love doing. I'm glad that I had the background in law. I'm glad that I even practiced. It's actually made lots of things in my current jobs, like very seamless in terms of doing deals and working in a corporate structure where having that background and that risk background from being a practicing lawyer is super helpful in the decisions that I have to make as a CFO. Basically, I wind up getting my first CFO job with a company called Inside Source. They are a commercial furniture dealer, design firm, In that role, I got to work on M&A. We purchased a couple of other companies, including one over in the UK. So I got to work on a lot of M&A work. I got to the operations team reported to me. And in that business, there's a big component of it, which is logistics and supply and movement. I got to work on that. I got to work on pricing. I just got exposure to all kinds of things in running that side of the business that weren't just finance. When I became the CFO of my first tech company, Reputation.com, that was super helpful because at that time, I understood that it wasn't just about making sure the books get closed and you report the financials. It was literally my main job was literally helping the CEO and the board see trends, see around corners. To do that, you need to understand the business. You need to live with the business. You need to you need to be closing the big deals with your chief revenue officer. You, re- you need to understand the customer complaints with your chief success officer. You need to dive into the deep end of literally running the business. All of that background with Debbie Allen came full circle for me and was super helpful in those roles and led me to where I am today. I'm the chief financial officer of Wing, which is Alphabet's drone delivery company. I serve on the board of a public company called NetScout. I also serve on the board of directors of SoFi Bank. I look at that and I'm like, all of these experiences led to that. There was no linear pathway to get to any of those roles. It was all about, I got experience with operations. Cool. I got experience with being the person in charge of standing up the budget and taking it down at a really high level. I've got a lot of knowledge that people actually want to use to help scale their companies. I'm actually good at that. That's not something I knew in school or that somebody wrote in like a job description. It was years of figuring that all out with my board of directors to say, this is the type of roles that you excel at. That's what you should look for. And we become a product of our experiences. Yeah. And that's certainly what you've become. You are your own product, if you will. (laughs) And you become that product through the experiences. If you do have a straight line, it's really not the same. You couldn't have accomplished what you did today without the varying experiences, both professionally and personally, that allowed you to be in this place. The biggest thing, Shannon, for me, as I'm talking to you, your story is far from finished. We're going to have to have other future 
episodes that will include you because you're such a role model for a number of groups. African-American community, women, people who have changed careers. This is educational and so important to other, not just women, but young people that don't get stuck, continue to learn, continue to have a thirst for knowledge. I always use the word inquisitive. You need to constantly be inquisitive about how things work. Is that something that you want to be involved in too, mentoring. Do you do that? I'm sure you do that now. I do fair, a fair amount of mentoring. In particular, I've been working with this organization called Black Women on Boards and another one called How Women Lead. Both organizations are trying to increase having more women, both at the C-suite and on public company board of directors. I spend a lot of time mentoring, talking, trying to help people with their pathway to get there. A big part of that also is having it's relationships. So at this point where I am in my life, I get called to do all these things. I can't do them all, but I know these five ladies. Black Women on Boards, the motto is lift as you climb. And I truly believe in that is purposeful for what I think we're doing. It leads into the next question, which I have a number of questions that I want to ask you now. One is, with all you've accomplished, what does the foreseeable, because your life is always about the unknown out there, but in the foreseeable future, what drives you today? Oh, that's easy. What drives me today is, so it's all about impact now. It really is about how can I get more people who come from my backgrounds? I want to get more people exposed, more people to understand these options that they have, especially in the C-suite. How can I do that and do that at a bigger scale? So one of the things, because you know I've worked in in media, is I have a film coming out this summer, and it's called On Board the Film. And it it talks about the history of board diversity through the lens of this woman. Her name was Patricia Roberts-Harris. She was the first African-American woman to be on a board. It was IBM's board. Not surprising to me that it was a tech company that put the first African-American woman on a board in 1971. And so it follows that story and that journey. It follows the story of lately how you had all these companies come out saying they were going to diversify and ESG is important. Then you had a law in California, that law was overturned. It follows all of that. And it showcases a lot of stories of people who have done not only really well, but could be role models for lots of people watching this. The goal is to continue to do works like that, that only bring me like personal joy, but can really be impactful for big groups of people. Do you have a release date and what platform is that working project? On, yeah, in? we're working on the platform part. So we're starting with the film festival route. And so we're doing a special training with Tribeca. We're doing several film festivals this summer. Hope to do something. I do want to do something here in the desert. Springs. So looking to plan something here. And then ultimately, after kind of when you finish the film festival circuit, you know, then you go to the deal. I do see this as something that's going to be great on a streaming platform for sure. And a lot of times they like to tie that in. You know, the marketing folks will want to tie that into something, some type of month, some something. If I could have a crystal ball, I think in the next 12 months, that's what will happen. And then it'll tie into, I don't know, Women's History Month or something like that. Phenomenal. But keep us informed. Yes. Please, because it's very, very exciting as your life continues to be. Tell me, Shannon, you've touched on many of them, but what are the people that have had the most impact on your life? My parents, 
Billy and Gwen King for sure. Even the grandparents, because what they had to do and what model they set and how they helped my upbringing as a little kid influenced a lot of me as well. I would say my husband, who Bill Nash, who I've known, like I said, since 1985, I believe, or something like that. Huge influence on so many levels. The mentors I mentioned, Larry Bailey and obviously Debbie Allen and Professor Hunt. The point is I've had all of these people at various pivotal points of my career who have stepped in and said, I am going to help support you. Even if it was just to say, like my girlfriend, Tanya Gregg, who took me to the party, even if it was just to say, you need to get out of your funk. I know you can do this. I'm your cheerleader. Let me take you to this party. I've been, I would say, blessed to have those people in my life. And I feel a huge sense of responsibility to do that for other people. I do it through the organizations I've mentioned. I try to support causes where people can get scholarships. I'm very into getting those scholarships where I can reach out and touch somebody, like directly, not just to give scholarships for scholarship's sake, but I know Jane Doe is getting it and going to this program and I can actually have some type of a relationship. I've actually had the fortune of having a couple of those type of things happen for me as well. And I can see impact. I've now in my career been able to have people call me up and say, thank you so much. You were my CFO or you were my VP of finance at Cumulus. And I've now passed a CPA exam. You were my role model. And here's my first job. I've had a VP of finance work for me who now himself is a CFO. That's the type of stuff that actually drives me a lot. And I think those are the things that would have tangible results that is more impactful than any new position or title or anything that we might have. Because when you touch people, which play it forward, and they will play it forward in the same way. One other interesting or something I'm interested in, what brought you to Bighorn? That same girlfriend I told you about that took me to the party, Tanya, her and her husband have a house in Palm Springs. She was like, you should come visit. You should come see it. And Bill and I were looking for where would we get like a vacation home. And we had different places we were looking. And I said, well, you know, Tanya has one in Palm Springs. We should just check it out. Well, Bill doesn't just, he's not that type of guy where you're like, just go check it out, drive around. He's already researched it. He's looked up communities. So by the time we got here, it was 4th of July weekend, he already kind of had a list of places and Bighorn was on it. And then we had a checklist of what we would potentially even want in a house. We were ready to just go looking. And so the realtor was like, oh, Bighorn's on your list. I'll take you to Bighorn. I didn't know what Bighorn was. I had no idea. We come to Bighorn. First, the house is amazing. Like, you know, you know how you, when you drive in, you're like, what is this place? It's on the canyon side. You're like, what? This is amazing. So the house is amazing. As we're leaving, we're talking to the selling realtor um, Nemi, shout out to Nemi. She's like, I think this house would be perfect for you and your family. And it comes furnished. Now that was kind of magical words to me at the time. Cause remember, I haven't really looked at a lot of vacation homes. I didn't realize that a lot of them come furnished. And when you like people's furnishings in your mind, you're like, how will I replicate this myself? I don't even have time to do this. She said, Oh, it's furnished. I was like, Oh my goodness, this is becoming more and more interesting to me. And then we go around on a ride. Dylan takes us, Dylan, like we actually meet Dylan and Mike, but Dylan takes us around on a ride. We come into the poorhouse. Everybody's so friendly. That's not what I was expecting, by the way, because we're not members. They're just people are friendly. I get a margarita, I believe, from the bar. So that's problematic, number one, because we understand 
that the regular margarita here is not a regular margarita. Okay. Maybe Dylan was trying to make me drink. I don't know. But we get a margarita and it's a really good time. We get over to the spa and everybody's really nice. And I get into the ladies room in the spa and a woman comes up to me. She's just chatting me up like, oh, hi, are you? Have you moved here? Are you thinking about it? Here's why you should move here. So at first I'm like, are these people plants? And then Marty, I'll tell you what shut it down for me. And I was like, how do we buy a house here? I can admit to you that I have a Starbucks problem. I do. It is an addiction that I am trying to break, but not today. So we drive around to the market and we get in there and I'm like, wait a minute, this is like a Starbucks, like a real Starbucks, not like a fake hotel Starbucks that doesn't taste like Starbucks. They're like, what would you like? And I told them my drink and they made it taste just like Starbucks. I look at Bill. I said, we need to buy this house. Hadn't even seen the vault. Hadn't even seen it. Didn't even know what that was. By the time we got to the vault, I was done. I'm overwhelmed with what this is. And so I think we need to try to figure out, I don't even want to look at other houses, but we do, but I don't want to because they pale in comparison to what this is all about. And so that was kind of it. We were going to look for a house passively for a couple of months. We came to Bighorn and in a day we were calling our advisor to say, let's put together an offer. It was that quick. I say this and you've just already outlined your experience. There's a lot of developments, but this is a community where people actually live here. And they're not plants. <laughs> it really is a situation. And again, I can speak for myself. We're just glad you guys are here. What do you look for in people that you work with? I think we've talked about this a lot. And I think that's because it's a, a trait that I think I have been rewarded for. I look for people who are inquisitive life learners, critical thinkers. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be the best at something. You just have to be somebody that's like scrappy, that wants to like figure it out. You're a critical thinker. We could sit here and whiteboard it for like two hours and I can come out feeling like we have like the best path forward to tell our board, to tell our CEO. I look for those type of people. Increasingly, I tell young people, especially my kids, increasingly with the advent of AI, BARD, chat GPT, those type of things, increasingly a lot of routine things will be easily done by AI, period. So if you're not a critical thinker and if that's not your skill set, it's going to be very hard for you to really compete in what the business world is morphing into right now. I tell kids right now who are in school, take all the core classes and take that data analytics class. And try to, if you can, get four or five of those classes under your belt. Because regardless of what you do for a living with this degree, just having the exposure to data analytics will make you like a better professional. So that's the type of things I look for. When you just touch on AI, and this is something, again, another episode. But as you look at it, you know, we hear everything, well, you know, it's something to be afraid of and it's something that uh, we need to get control of. Or this is past that, it would seem to me. You either accept it and go with it and learn as much as you possibly can. Is that your attitude? A hundred percent. And there's a lot of people who have recently been in the news talking about how we have to put parameters and understand it. I agree with that. There definitely has to be parameters and it. it doesn't need to be this scary thing where like the movies where the robots take over everything and we're all running for the hills. No. And I don't believe that will happen, but it does have to have some parameters. That being said, 
the ship has sailed. So when I tell people what I do, when I tell them about drone delivery and they think the Jetsons, I'm like, what you should actually do is go back and watch a couple episodes of the Jetson and then check off all the things that actually already exist. There is a robot that goes around on the floor that Rosie used to take out and let clean. That's called a Roomba. It already exists. They have the flying saucer, like in Dubai, they have the flying like AI, like like little taxis that exist. Self-driving cars. That's what Bill's company does, Cruise. That exists. If you come to San Francisco, Marty, we will get you a ride in a self-driving car. And guess what? It's not like a, a special thing the Nashes did for you. The public can go do this. If you go to Australia, I can tell you where our planes are flying. If you go to Dallas-Fort Worth area in the States, we've got a pilot there. This is happening. What needs to happen, I agree, is that it needs to happen in a way that's responsibly being scaled out. And that's the job that a lot of us who work for these companies, that's what we're doing. What it does for the environment, the convenience, let's just say the scale of how businesses need to operate to be profitable, a lot of that is going to be done by AI. Wing is not going to take over every delivery on earth. That's not even our goal. Our drones are 11 pounds and they're made of styrofoam. Carrying that chair right here that we're looking at, it's not carrying a chair in the air. You don't ever have to worry about that. But what we do carry, like this bottle of water, we aim to be the safest, quickest, most cost-efficient way, better for the environment, et cetera, to deliver this to you than literally you getting this from a 3,000-pound car. The last question I ask everybody what would you tell the 20-year-old you today? There was about 25 of us that, A, I brought to Bighorn. I brought around 25 African-American women, all C-suite and corporate board members here, and we had a retreat. The level of conversation, connections that was going on, all under this beautiful setting. Some of the people in that same group, in particular, shout out to my friend, Lori, who is the chief equity officer of Salesforce, she also had us go to a Duran Duran concert in the Salesforce like suite. It was amazing. I remember at that concert and I had the same feeling at Bighorn when I brought the ladies here to have this retreat. That person used to sit in a room and Duran Duran is critical to that because I would listen to Duran Duran songs over and over and over. You remember that's when people listen to like stuff over and over again. I had the posters and all of those things. And she just dreamed of like, they sung about Rio and I was like, oh, maybe one day I can go there, but that's probably really hard. She just dreamed about doing something big and being important and being impactful. She dreamed about it. Didn't know how she was going to get there. And I remember being in that concert, me and my friend Lori were sitting next to each other. And I was like almost in tears because I was like, every time I hear the song, The Reflex, because I played it so much, I think about how I would doubt myself. I don't know why that song, but I would doubt myself. Like, I don't know if you can accomplish anything. You, you dream too big. You probably just need to like hone it in. Yes, there were plenty of people around me who were like, you always want to do stuff. There were always those people. And that song in particular, I remember just days of doubting myself. And me and my friend both were like, look at us now. We're sitting here in freaking Salesforce box, like this close to Duran Duran, having a great time. Oh, and by the way, all these ladies around us are all super accomplished. And they're like our sisters. Well, where did this life come from? I would tell her, and I said this at that concert, I would tell that girl who was listening to the reflex in her room, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't there. You're going to have some bad days, but don't give up because you're going to have an amazing life. Just don't give up. 
And that's even more amazing coming from you because as we talk about all of your accomplishments, where you are today, it's hard to imagine you ever questioning whether that was possible today. But I think that is an important, important message to give somebody, the 20-year-old you, because we all doubt ourselves in some manner. But don't give up. Continue to move forward. Shannon, I can't tell you how much fun this has been to talk and for you to come in here and share this story. And we talk about wanting to be inspirational, wanting to show people what's possible, educational. You've checked off every box. And I hope that not only that we had today, that we'll have future discussions because this is an ongoing story and an ongoing conversation. But thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for having us in Bighorn. We're lucky to have you here. Shannon, thank you so much for sharing your story, which reminds us of the challenges and commitment, along with the perseverance that it takes to maximize our opportunities that present themselves. Thanks to Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, Back Nine Greens, the Eisenhower Medical Center, and Corliss Estate Wine for their support in bringing these stories to you. Please support them when you can and thank them for their contributions to our community. We look forward to this new season and bringing you more interesting people and their extraordinary stories on the Bighorn Podcast. Thank you for listening.